History is the most important subject that you can study. And if you can't see what's happening in the past, you can't look nearly as far in the future. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Men will still say, this was a final. This is Rewind Repeat, a history podcast. God delivered Judah from the Assyrians. Judah was the only kingdom to successfully resist the West's best and most powerful army. That army had terrorized the Levant so completely and even took down most of Judah's cities. But it was eliminated in a single night. God did that for Hezekiah because Hezekiah was doing his best to obey and trust in God. But that wasn't the only trial Hezekiah faced at that time. He was also dealing with something else, something personal. As you can imagine, it was a stressful time dealing with the Assyrians, and that stress wrecked Hezekiah's health. The whole nation was depending on him, and he was facing the superpower at that time. Imagine if Mexico had to deal with an invasion by the United States. Well, actually, Mexico did in the 1800s, and they didn't fare that well. And that's probably overestimating Judah's physical strength in comparison to Assyria at the time. But it gets you most of the way there in realizing how much stress Hezekiah was under. His body developed some kind of boil that was either threatening his life or was a result of a fatal disease. He had to contend with that at the same time he was dealing with the Assyrian threat. Here's what's recorded in 2 Kings 20 verse 1. Quote, In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death, and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, Thus says the Eternal, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. That's quite the prophecy. And anyone hearing that would have just even had more stress added to them. Hezekiah was still fairly young, even for ancient times, and had no heir yet. He'd been loyal to God, cleansed God's temple, restored it to its past glory. He had also gotten rid of a lot of the pagan idolatry in Judah. But now, dozens of Judah's cities had been laid waste by the Assyrians. And on top of that, he was suffering a health trial. And that was God's word to him. That would be tough for anyone to hear. At this time, Hezekiah was very close to God and turned to him immediately in prayer. Quote, Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Eternal, saying, I beseech you, O Eternal, remember now how I have walked before you in truth and with a perfect heart and have done good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. What a scene. The king of Judah in front of whomever was there, turned to the wall, facing the direction of the temple, no doubt, and prayed aloud while weeping. It's a relatable moment in this history of kings, emperors, and prophets. Which one of us hasn't gone through some kind of difficult time and wept sore? It would have been easy for Hezekiah to lash out at God 
but instead he turned to God in prayer. And while Isaiah was walking out of that palace complex, God's word came to him, and God told Isaiah this, quote, Turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, the eternal, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up unto the house of the eternal, and I will add unto your days fifteen years, and I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my sake and for my servant David's sake. End quote. Isaiah then told Hezekiah to take a lump of figs and lay it on the boil, and Hezekiah recovered. What a merciful God! and an encouraging answer to Hezekiah's prayer, and not just about his health, but also about Jerusalem. Hezekiah knew exactly how much time he had left in his life now. And it's fascinating to think, if you were put on some kind of countdown like this, how would you make the most of your time? Well, the truth is, of course, that we're all on a countdown. We're all racing toward death, and we have to make the most of our time that we have. There is a lot of interesting things going on with this pronouncement from God. The 15 years, the healing, God's instruction on how to be healed, and God's promised deliverance for Jerusalem. But to me, the icing on the cake is the sign of Hezekiah's healing. The sign, the shadow moving back 10 degrees. The Bible recorded this, quote, And Hezekiah said unto Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Eternal will heal me, and that I shall go up into the house of the Eternal a third day? And Isaiah said, This sign shall you have of the Eternal, that the Eternal will do the thing that he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten degrees, or go back ten degrees? And Hezekiah answered, It is a light thing for the shadow to go down ten degrees. Nay, but let the shadow return backward ten degrees. And Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Eternal, and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backward by which it had gone down in the dial of Ahaz. End quote. The shadow moved back 10 degrees. And remembering that sign gives us context to the next part of the biblical record of Hezekiah's reign. So the king looked to God for deliverance, and God was rewarding him for that, and all of Jerusalem would be blessed too. Hezekiah was overcoming his tests and trials. And what's interesting here is that you have this reference over and over to King David. And I haven't talked about King David yet, but this is actually the point of the series. King David was a righteous king, a man after God's own heart who fulfilled all of God's will, Paul said in Acts 13 verse 22. And that's quite the statement. I'd imagine any Christian would want that to be said of them as well. He wasn't just any king of Israel. King David started the dynasty that ruled Israel and after the kingdom split, continued to rule Judah, the one dynasty, which is pretty remarkable considering that the kingdom of Israel, just north of Judah, had nine dynasties after it rejected David's throne. The Jews had a lot of respect for King David, even all the way down to this time which is pretty unique for a culture. Assyrian and Babylonian kings had a habit of erasing the accomplishments of their forefathers to make themselves look better. But not so in Judah. King David was the standard that all righteous kings aimed for. 
to be a man after God's own heart. Now, the unrighteous kings, of course, wouldn't shoot for that goal, but they could never erase or destroy the legacy of King David. And there is a reason why and went far beyond just a man or any physical kingdom. There was a divine reason for this. God promised King David something extraordinary. It was one of the greatest blessings God could ever give to a human being. He promised David this in 2 Samuel 7, quote, And when your days be fulfilled and you shall sleep with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, which shall proceed out of your bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. End quote. Forever. Later, God added some detail to that. Quote, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. End quote. David's throne would go on forever. It would be the throne that Jesus Christ would rule from in the future. And that was explained by an angel to Mary who said, quote, The Lord God shall give unto Christ the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. End quote. When you actually stop to think about it, what forever means, it is absolutely mind-blowing. The Jews knew of this prophecy, and it helped motivate their righteous kings. This promise and David's legacy was motivation to keep God's law and lead his people in that way. Or it should have been, at least. For the wicked kings, they either ignored it or used it maybe as a license to do what they wanted. God referred to his own promise here when talking to Hezekiah through Isaiah. For my sake, God said, for David's sake. A righteous king like Hezekiah would be like a living reminder to God about his promise to David, not that he'd forget. That throne, by the way, was symbolized by a stone, a stone that had been attached to Israel's history for a long time, all the way back to Jacob. That stone goes by several different names, Jacob's Pillar Stone, the Stone of Destiny. Whichever name you go with it, it starts with a spectacular vision. About a thousand years before Hezekiah, Israel's patriarch Jacob was traveling in the same area that would eventually become a part of the kingdom of Israel. Here is what is recorded in Genesis 28. Quote, And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the eternal God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. The land wherein you lie, to you will I give it and to your seed. End quote. This was just an incredible event here. Imagine a ladder extending into the clear night sky, a sky with no ambient light whatsoever. You've probably gazed into a sky with very little light around you've noticed how much brighter the stars were but now imagine those stars even more brilliant the earth's atmosphere was a window to the universe and this ladder extended into that expanse with angelic beings moving up and down and at the top you have the most brilliant and brightest being this would be awesome 
It was a tremendous vision and a stupendous promise. There was more to God's promise, including a prophecy of the Savior there, but we won't get into all of that. When Jacob awoke, he saw the stones he laid out for his pillows became one stone. Quoting the Bible, quote, Surely the eternal is in this place, and I knew it not. How dreadful is this place! This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it, end quote. There was a lot of symbolism in that miracle. Gerald Flurry wrote in his booklet, The Key of David, quote, Jacob was filled with wonder and joy at what had happened. He had realized that God had performed a tremendous miracle. These stones had literally become a single stone, Jacob's pillar stone. What had been a pillow to Jacob turned into a pillar. The word for pillar in the Hebrew means a memorial stone. God wants us to remember this stone and what it represents, end quote. That stone was a sign of where God was working. Jacob knew that God would build his house there in that place as well. That stone would wrap history and the future together in one beautiful symbol. Jacob and his descendants, Israel, kept that stone with them and eventually the throne of Israel, King David's throne, was placed over that stone. It became a symbol of David's throne. So this was the brilliant, magnificent history of that stone tied with David's throne. The weight of that heritage should have anchored any king that would sit on that throne. When God answered Hezekiah's prayer, he referenced all of that symbolism when he spoke of King David. That's quite a legacy. Going back to the sign of that miracle, it's pretty remarkable when you think about what it would have involved. When I think about it, for me, it's in the top three miracles of all time to make the shadow go back 10 degrees. Wouldn't it actually be more miraculous than what God did to the Assyrian army? And even secular historians had some wacky explanations about what could have happened to that Assyrian army that God's angel destroyed in a single night. These explanations were wrong, but put forward by people who didn't believe in God. And at the time, they would have had to believe their theory was credible enough to publish it without just destroying the reputation. So in their minds, their explanations like rats eating bowstrings or disease, it was all explainable by something other than a divine miracle. But this miracle, the shadow turning back, how could you even explain this one? How could it not be divine intervention? And it would have been noticed in more places than just Jerusalem, especially those living in the Middle East would have had a chance to observe it. And this miracle, as I said before, is an interesting context for what happened next. You see, an anomaly like this would have been noticed by astronomers or by what went for astronomers at this time. And there was a group of them recognized in the West as the experts in the field. They were among the most venerated group of people in the Mesopotamian culture. They were the Chaldeans. And it's worth spending some time to explain a bit about the Chaldeans. They're going to come up in the history quite a bit. 
the term itself can be kind of hard to nail down because it has several meanings based on the context that it's used in. Around the time of the Babylonian Empire and later, it was most commonly used to categorize a societal class or a caste. One that was a mix of astronomers and astrologers, it was like they were the wizards of the day. At the same time, they were the most educated in math, science, and astronomy. And that's typical for the ancient world, but it sounds kind of outlandish to our modern ears today, doesn't it? They had knowledge of astronomy and its perversion, astrology. And they had knowledge of physics and its perversion of sorcery. And they would pass the knowledge on in temple schools where priests would teach students with tablets. Except, unlike today, those tablets were clay. Will Durant writes in his history, Our Oriental Heritage, quote, Astronomy was the special science of the Babylonians, for which they were famous throughout the ancient world. Here again, magic was the mother of science. The Babylonians studied the stars, not so much to chart courses or caravans and ships, as to divine the future fates of men. They were astrologers first and astronomers afterwards, end quote. So they were like the ancient scientists of the day, but they're also almost like priests because by predicting the movements of the heavens, they could claim they were in communication with the gods. And what's super interesting here is that there is actually a biblical patriarch that was involved in the learning of astronomy and the math and the science along with the Chaldeans at a much earlier time. And so I'll make a quick digression here. A 3rd century BCE Babylonian historian and a member of this Chaldean class, actually, he was both a priest and an astronomer, wrote about one of their leading scientists at the time. The historian is Barosis, and he wrote this, quote, In the 10th generation after the flood, there was among the Chaldeans a man righteous and great and skillful in the celestial science, end quote. While Barosis doesn't give this great scientist a name, when you look at other historians, namely some Jewish historians, you find out who that really was. First century Jewish historian Josephus tells us that Barosis was writing about Abraham. He recorded this in his Antiquities of the Jews that Abraham, quote, was the first that ventured to publish this notion that there is but one God, the creator of the universe. This, his opinion, was derived from the irregular phenomena that were visible both at land and sea, as well as those that happened to the sun and moon and all the heavenly bodies thus. If, said he, these bodies had power of their own, they would certainly take care of their own regular motion. But since they do not preserve such regularity, they make it plain that insofar as they cooperate to our advantage, they do it not of their own abilities, but as they are subservient to him that commands them to whom alone we ought justly to offer our honor and thanksgiving, end quote. So Abraham used the science to prove that God existed. Another two Jewish historians, Philo and Nicolaus of Damascus, also mention Abraham in this context by name. And you might think, hey, well, it's just Jewish historians talking about their ancestor. But there is a 4th century CE Roman historian, Eusebius, who read these Jewish historians and saw no reason to not believe them. He even cited an earlier work by a different Jewish historian named Eupolemus from the 2nd century BCE titled Concerning the Jews of Assyria, which spoke of Abraham surpassing, quote, all men in nobility and wisdom, 
who was also the inventor of astronomy in the Chaldaic art and pleased God well by his zeal towards religion, end quote. This Roman historian saw no problem believing the record and realized, too, he would have had access to all kinds of records that we no longer have today. Even Josephus had access to history we don't have, and that history said the same thing. He pointed to a 6th century BCE Greek historian, Hecatius, saying that he not only mentioned Abraham by name in this context, but even devoted an entire book to his accomplishments. Unfortunately, today we only have two fragmentary works from Hecatius, but regardless, the record is clear. The Bible shows Abraham grew up in Babylonia, in Ur of the Chaldees, and apparently he was there among that higher educated class or caste, passing on some scientific knowledge at the very time Barossa said this man existed, which would have been about 1900 to 1800 BCE. Abraham posed a great contrast to the astrology and sorcery that the Babylonians got mixed up in. And in fact, Abraham's arguments on God, based on science, were rejected by the Babylonians, who decided to continue in the worship of the creation instead of the creator. So Abraham ended up breaking ties with them, and he traveled to Egypt. And when he did, he shared the math and science with the Egyptians, who then passed that on to the Greeks. And the Greeks acknowledged this, by the way, that they got the foundation of their science and math from Egypt, who got it from the Chaldeans. It may be hard to believe for those who don't take much stock in the Bible, but it's hard to ignore all these other sources. We also take for granted that history is this upward progression in knowledge and ideas. But one thing the history teaches us is that if we actually dig into it, the ancients had quite a bit of knowledge and understanding. For example, a circular tablet was found and it was dated to around the same time period, 1900 to 1600 BCE. I recognize that this is a large range, but let's not get into the controversy of carbon dating right now. This tablet, which can be held in one hand, is believed to be the oldest known example of applied geometry. The tablet is actually a land survey to solve a property dispute, but the math used in it is known as the Pythagorean triples. They used triangles to create right angles to survey the land. It's basically an understanding of the Pythagorean theorem and a different approach to trigonometry based on their own base 60 counting system. Another clay tablet found and dated to this time period actually shows a trigonometric table with calculations all laid out for property measurements. The point is the math and science of this time period was quite advanced. You typically learn in math that Pythagoras discovered the Pythagorean theorem. That probably brings up some school memories, doesn't it? And it's kind of funny to think that some scholar's entire life's work in ancient Greece is now a teenager's homework for a week. But we see that the Babylonians actually knew quite a bit back at this time, and you would have to in order to predict the movement of heavenly bodies. They just had their own approach based on their own counting system. These Chaldeans, or Babylonian astronomers, were good at it. This group of highly educated people were part of the upper echelon of Babylonian society, and they would later be referred to as a group as Chaldeans. Their reputation and teachings lived long after they did, and not just on the math side, but also on the pagan side, 
they did a lot of the Zodiac constellations, and so a lot of pagan concepts and ideas were derived from their work on that. This group was named after a land and an entire population as well. And that's the other meaning of the term Chaldean. It's an older use referring to an entire race or ethnic group of people in Mesopotamia. They're more tribal in organization with ill-defined borders and hard-to-measure political strength. Their strength had more to do with their leader and his prestige and competence. And the leader was called a sheik, although sometimes they would call themselves a king. When they appear in Babylonian records, the Chaldeans formed five major tribes, the largest ones controlling over 30 cities in the Babylonia region, and all of them controlling several hundred villages each at least. And at this point, they were fully absorbed into Babylonian culture. They were speaking Babylonian, adopting Babylonian names as well. Here's what Joan Oates writes in her book, Babylon. Quote, Contemporary evidence shows beyond any doubt that these people were far from being impoverished nomads. The Assyrian reliefs portray them living in an area of flourishing date palms, and other evidence indicates that some were even city dwellers. The Chaldeans kept large herds of horses and cattle, and to judge from the tribute exacted from them, were, if not themselves merchants, at least in control of the southern routes along which traveled such exotic luxuries as ebony, ivory, sisu, a kind of valuable Indian timber, elephant hides, and gold, end quote. In other words, just like you may have to fight the impression that the ancients weren't mathematically advanced, just because the Chaldeans were tribal and nomadic, don't think they weren't advanced. They controlled some of the most important trade routes in Mesopotamia at the bottom where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers emptied out. Eventually, they would give their name to southern Babylonia, all of it. They became more settled too as time went on, settling and controlling the largest cities in the area eventually they were even challenging Assyria for control of the Fertile Crescent. And when you read the history of Babylonia, it looks like it's just one endless battle for control. The Assyrians had been involved with Babylon since the 1300s BCE, though they became dominant much later in the 700s BCE when this story takes place. The Babylonians themselves had a period where they dominated early on, but then there was a time that other people came in like the Kassites and they controlled Babylonia. But then there are other incursions as well by the Selin people or the Elamites from the east. And at times, the relationship between the Babylonians and Assyrians was friendly, and at other times, they were downright enemies. But in all of that struggle for control of Mesopotamia, the Chaldeans were there as well, and sometimes they were able to get a king on the throne. When the Chaldean king Nabonassar took the throne in 747, you start to get more records of Babylonian history. The Greeks, such as Berossus, say it was because Nabonassar had all the previous records, both of the previous Babylonian kings and the astronomical records, destroyed so that the start of Chaldean kings would begin with him. It's kind of interesting. And what I find fascinating about this is that the Greeks saw this kind of like a turning point in the history of science and math. And so history in this area was so old in Babylonia that what we view as ancient historians were already assigning epics and periods of times to these earlier years, just like we look to the Greeks as this big foundational point in Western civilization. 
Well, the Greeks looked at the Chaldeans in the same way for their own civilization. During Nabonassar's reign, the Assyrians under Tiglath-Pileser III, or Pole of the Bible, became the preeminent military power of the West. After Nabonassar died, a rebellion broke out in which his son was murdered, and Tiglath couldn't help but use Assyria's military strength to intervene in Babylon. He had already been meddling, and this was a golden opportunity for Assyria. So by 730 BCE, Assyria intervened and cut off the Babylonian usurper support from Elam, subdued some Chaldean tribes, but the usurper managed to escape. And on the way of chasing him down, Tiglath marched to Babylon. He promised the Babylonians if they opened the gates, he would grant them all amnesty, give them privileged status with taxes, but the Babylonians refused. There are records showing that the Babylonians debated about what to do with the Assyrians. There was an anti-Assyrian faction that wanted them out, but there was a pro-Assyrian faction there that was actually okay with Assyrian rule as long as it brought stability for Babylonia. So Tiglath had to move on, but he caught up to the usurper and ended that guy's bid for control of Babylon. And so in the end, the only one that could control Babylon was Tiglath, and he took over the throne in 729 BCE during the Babylonian New Year. He even underwent the official Babylonian coronation ceremony involving the official act of taking the hand of Marduk, or Bel. And by doing so, the king received the blessing of Babylon's most important and patron god, Marduk, and therefore could reign. This is an interesting ceremony, by the way, and a good point to explain something about Mesopotamian culture at this time. Something that the Babylonians and the Chaldeans and the Assyrians and all the people of all the other major cities in this area believed. There was a lot of pagan idolatry at the time, with each city having a patron god or goddess and an idol for that god. But it's not what you're likely thinking about today. Back then, this wasn't an abstract concept. The god was truly living in the city because the idol was the god. That idol was placed in a temple within the city that was dedicated to it. And as such, the god or goddess lived in the temple, ate in the temple, slept in the temple, and would participate in other human activities at the temple. And because that god or goddess lived in the city, ultimately, for the Mesopotamians, the city was the god as well. Joan Oates writes in the book Babylon that the city was viewed as the actual property of the patron god which is assigned to it when it was founded. Quote, The total identification of God with the city was an underlying tenet of Sumerian society. The temple of the city god was the city's central feature. End quote. Now, chronologically, Samaria refers to the area from an earlier time than what we're covering right now, but it did form the foundation for all of Mesopotamian culture. Every city had their god, and when you move on in time, a census of gods taken about a century before Christ put the number of gods in this area at about 6,500. So there are a lot of pagan gods. And it's important to remember, too, that there's no distinction at this time between religion and work life or religion and science or religion and education like we have today, religious, social, economic, political activities, they were all combined in a way we don't see in modern societies today. 
What happened to Babylon's central deity affected all aspects of the life in that city. If the idol was taken away, the city believed it was cursed. At this point in time, Marduk reigned supreme in the Mesopotamian pantheon. That itself was the major sign of which city was dominant, which city's god was the top god. Then that means that god's city was the top city. And that means that city's king would have the most prestige because that king was the representative of the top god. Other people in different cities recognized that even though they had their own patron gods. And this is why so many powerful people and kingdoms and later emperors tried to control Babylon. The identification of city and god had a pretty big implication on monarchy. And it's important to understand what this was because it helps explain why Assyrian kings generally treated Babylon with a lot more leniency than they treated other cities. Oates writes, quote, The theory of kingship expressed in mythological texts is more explicit. They state that the king was nominated for office by his own city god in an assembly of gods meeting at Nippur. Since to a Sumerian, city and gods were synonymous, the council of gods would have been equivalent to the council of cities, end quote. In this earlier time in Samaria, Joan is referring to the city of Nippur had a god named Enlil, and that god reigned in the pantheon. And so Nippur was the most prestigious city at the time, and also politically the most dominant city of the area. But it was sacked by the Elamites and never recovered. And eventually, over time, Babylon took over the role as the dominant city of Mesopotamia. And as Babylon grew in power, Marduk rose in prominence in the pantheon. This once obscure god now becomes the dominant god. So they both feed off each other, political and religious prestige. Now Marduk, this once obscure god, got all the attributes of Enlil and then some more. And in all this pantheon of paganism, Babylon and its god reigned supreme. Marduk or Bel Marduk reigned supreme over thousands of gods. And Babylon therefore dominated Mesopotamian culture all the way until the time of Alexander's conquest of the area. This connection between a city's god and king had ramifications on how a king ruled as well. How could it not? Paul Bulu wrote in a history of Babylon about this connection, and I think it's worth bringing up because it reveals the nature of kingship at this time and the relationship the ordinary person, the Joe Schmo, had with their king and their pagan god. He writes about one of the titles for a ruler in Samaria was Enzi, and he writes this, quote, The title Enzi embodies a notion of leadership quite at home in Sumerian city-states, where god and goddesses reigned over the land conceptualizes as their private domain, with the population to serve them as subjects and the ruler to administer the domain on their behalf. Later, Babylonian kingship will inherit these two aspects of political rule, with the Sharu, Akkadian for king, appearing to his subjects as a charismatic, dictator-like figure with vast discretionary powers, yet at the same time answerable to the gods in his function of humble caretaker, preoccupied with social justice and the maintenance of temples and canals constituting the gods' domain, end quote. So the kings were dictators with vast powers because they were representatives of this god, this pagan god. 
and this applied to Assyrian rulers as well and all those other different kingdoms in the area. So it was a big deal then for Assyria to gain control of Babylon. The ceremony was important too. The golden idol of Marduk was housed in the innermost part of his temple. Or if you're a Babylonian, you'd say he lived there. A new king would need to take the hands of Marduk to become the legitimate ruler. And it was a custom that dated long before the Assyrians got to the city. No one really knows, too, by the way, whether it was a literal take the hands of Marduk if the king actually had to touch the idol or not. But based on the record, we know the idol had to be present for the king to be the legitimate ruler of Babylon. Tiglath claimed the title king, but he made it clear that Babylon would still be considered a separate entity. In other words, Tiglath was king of Assyria and king of Babylon. There would be no puppet king in Babylon, and Babylon wasn't completely subsumed by Assyria. Below writes, quote, Because of their cultural and religious deference to Babylonia, the Assyrians could not just reduce it to the status of mere province, like so many of their other conquests. The creation of a double kingship, a personal union not unlike that of England and Scotland in modern times, seemed the best solution within an imperial framework, since it preserved both Assyrian interests and Babylonian particularism. End quote. So you have a double kingship in hopes that the Assyrians can keep Babylon pacified and under control. By removing a puppet king in Babylon, Tiglath hoped to eliminate any future contender for the throne, and by not making it just a mere province, he would make the Babylonians happy. He did, of course, appoint a governor to carry out his wishes there, and he even offered sacrifices in major shrines all over northern Babylonia as he made his way back up to Assyria, all of this done to keep the Babylonians happy. But from that time on, you'd see this tension between the military power of Assyria and the cultural dominance of Babylon. Oates puts it this way, quote, The period from now, when Tiglath took the throne, until 626 was one of Assyrian supremacy in Babylonia, but a supremacy plagued by the curious love-hate relationship which had flowered in reaction to the conflicting demands of Babylonian cultural dominance and Assyrian military hegemony, end quote. So handling the Babylonians with all this care ultimately didn't work. There was just too much pride in that city, too much prestige at stake, and the Chaldeans in the southern part of Babylonia continued to resist Assyrian control. Oates continues, quote, The Assyrians expended energy and resources their small country could ill afford, and repeated attempts to control the troublesome southern tribes, while the Chaldeans fought alternately among themselves and to maintain their independence from Assyria. Thus, the Chaldeans with Elam to the east, ever ready to supply both moral and military support, came to symbolize the anti-Assyrian movement and became the unwitting champions of Babylonian nationalism. The citizens of Babylonia's northern cities preferred peace and security at any cost and remained strongly pro-Assyrian even in the last years of Assyria's decline. End quote. Control of Babylon was never permanent, and even while the Assyrians were at the peak of their power, at times they lost control of Babylon. After Tiglath died, Babylon was ruled by Shalmaneser V as a dual monarchy again. He was deposed, though, and in the chaos in that dynastic struggle for control of Assyria, a Chaldean leader named Merodach Baladin was able to seize the throne in 721 BCE. 
Less than three months after that, Sargon II gained control of the Assyrian throne. And this was all right around the time that the Assyrians had conquered Israel and deported the Israelites. It took over a decade for Sargon to focus on putting down Merodach-Baladin. This was an example of why it wasn't a bad gamble for a king to try rebellion. As I asked in the last episode, would you rather have a stab of being an independent king for 10 years or be a puppet king for maybe 20? In this case, Sargon had been focused on the Levant, his enemies in the north, and Elam in the east. But when he was finished with his campaigns there, he marched to Babylon. Here's what's recorded in a display inscription, and I'll use a translation from below. Quote, 12 years Merodach Baladin ruled and governed Babylon, the city of the gods against the will of the gods. Marduk, the great lord, saw the evil deeds of the Chaldean whom he despised, and the taking away of his royal scepter and throne was established on his lips. He, Marduk, chose me, Sargon, the reverent king, among all kings, and he justly appointed me. He selected me in the land of Sumer and Akkad. In order to undermine the Chaldean, the evil enemy, he strengthened my weapons. On the orders of Marduk, my great lord, I prepared the weaponry, pitched my camp, and ordered my soldiers to march against the evil Chaldean. Merodach Baladin was forced to flee in the night to a territory held by his own Chaldean tribe. And the Babylonians opened their gate to Sargon, who, according to the records, took the hand of Marduk and reigned as Babylon's king from 709 to 705 BCE. Sargon treated Babylon with the usual traditional privileges the prestigious city expected to receive, so you have a dual monarchy again, and he was king of Assyria and king of Babylon. And he actually stayed there for three years in an effort to keep down the Chaldean tribes, and he claimed to have deported 108,000 Chaldeans and Amorians to different areas of the land, and then bring in foreigners to repopulate Chaldea. Sargon then chased Merodach Baladin into his hometown, besieged it, captured it, burned it, but Merodach Baladin escaped with his life to Elam in 707 BCE. Now, Sargon apparently died in battle in the northern frontier of Assyria in 705 BCE, two years later, something that rarely happened to an Assyrian monarch, by the way, and Sennacherib took over as king of Assyria and Babylonia. Yet, as usual, when there was a new king, there was dynastic chaos, and in that moment of Assyrian weakness, a usurper from Babylon tried to take over the city. In those days, if you were going to gamble on rebellion, you'd do it when a king died and a new king came in because there's always a chance of a civil war that might destroy the kingdom or that weaker king might be too weak to militarily suppress you. So that usurper, though, did not reign in the city for that long, and in all that turmoil... In Babylon and in Assyria, Merodach Baladin makes a comeback and seizes the throne of Babylon for a second time. Merodach Baladin, by the way, is also called Baradach Baladin in the Book of Kings in the Bible. Now, the Assyrian counterattack was going to happen. It's just a matter of when it happens. Baradach Baladin knew this, but he's hoping that he has some time like he had before. If he plays his cards right scrapes up some allies, and maybe he has a chance of staying on the throne for at least another decade. So he tried to stir up rebellion in other parts of Assyria's hegemony and try to gain some allies. And who better to ask than a kingdom that successfully withstood the onslaught of Assyria before? 
And if that wasn't good enough, why not send some Chaldeans to investigate this rumor or story of a freak astronomical anomaly that was caused by this king's healing from a fatal disease? Now, if an emissary from the king of Babylon, from the ancient and culturally dominant city, that most important city of Mesopotamia, visited you with gifts, how could you resist letting them in. The king Merodach Baladin wanted to ally with was, of course, Hezekiah. And he sent Hezekiah an emissary with some letters and a gift to the Judean king. And here's what Isaiah recorded at the time. And remember, Isaiah was the prophet who had worked with Hezekiah to appeal to God for deliverance from the Assyrians. And Jewish tradition states that Hezekiah was even married to Isaiah's daughter. So you have this prophet-king relationship with a proven track record and successful dealing in foreign affairs. And of course, all that being led by God. Here's what Isaiah recorded in his book in the 39th chapter. Quote, At that time, Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and was recovered. End quote. So you see the Babylonian king used the account of Hezekiah's sickness and recovery as his inroad to start a relationship with Hezekiah. And while it doesn't mention it, it's likely he probably had a Chaldean there inquiring about that sign of the healing. It all makes for great small talk, doesn't it? Send a Chaldean with an emissary to investigate what happened. The Chaldean can impress the Jewish king with all his learning and education, and they can all show how great Babylon is. And oh, by the way, you should side with us. And then when Hezekiah was warmed up after some flattery and some great discussion, probably on the movements of heavenly bodies, Hezekiah let his guard down. He was not as close to God's prophet Isaiah as he was before. And clearly he wasn't as close to God as he was before. That productive relationship that helped save Israel was not what it once was. He didn't consult Isaiah in any of this. Here's what Isaiah recorded. Quote, and Hezekiah was glad of them and showed them the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment and all the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasures. There is nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. End quote. Hezekiah showed that emissary everything. Of course, he showed the ambassador, the temple of God. You don't get exactly what was being discussed here from the record, but you can tell that this might have been the start of Hezekiah working on some kind of alliance with Babylon. Hezekiah wanted to impress the Babylonians, just as the Babylonians had done the same with him. Hezekiah showed them how much wealth he had and how much he could potentially support a Babylonian army or perhaps even raise a Jewish one himself maybe in return for some favorable trade agreements. Now, in another account of this in the Bible recorded in Chronicles, we see that this was a test from God. After years of rebuilding from the Assyrian invasion, the Judean kingdom was wealthy and doing well. God had blessed them because the king had looked to God for deliverance and cleaned up the pagan idolatry. They're reaping the rewards of some righteous leadership. But in that time period, Hezekiah had become vain and was drifting away from God. And he started to trust in his own wealth and power, not in the one who gave it. 
Gerald Flurry writes this in his booklet, Isaiah's End Time Vision, quote, Hezekiah was being tested here, and he made a serious mistake. He became puffed up knowing that the king of Babylon was so concerned about him. In his vanity, he showed the king's messengers all of his treasures. A terrible error, end quote. Isaiah learned about this Babylonian emissary and went to Hezekiah to find out what happened. Here's what is recorded in the Bible, quote, Then came Isaiah the prophet unto King Hezekiah, and said unto him, What said these men, and from whence came they unto you? And Hezekiah said, They are come from a far country unto me, even from Babylon. Then said he, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, All that is in my house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. End quote. Gerald Fleury points out that Hezekiah didn't answer Isaiah's first question. Here's what he wrote in the same booklet, quote, Notice here that Hezekiah did not answer Isaiah's first question. He completely ignored it. He did answer Isaiah's second question. Why did Hezekiah not answer the first question? Could it be that Hezekiah did not answer the first question because he was cozying up to Babylon? End quote. So it looks like Hezekiah was making some plans to ally with Babylon, and he didn't want to reveal it to Isaiah. God's response was swift. Here's what the Bible recorded. Quote, Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Eternal of hosts. Behold, the days come that all that is in your house and that which your fathers have laid up in store until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Eternal. And of your sons that shall issue from you, which you shall beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. End quote. Gerald Fleury states that this was the beginning of the undoing of Hezekiah's family's life in the nation of Judah. He wrote this in a different booklet called Isaiah's End Time Vision. Quote, Isaiah was concerned about Hezekiah's actions because he could see far better than Hezekiah could, spiritually speaking. Isaiah did not trust the king of Babylon. He recognized that Hezekiah was getting too close to Babylon. He prophesied about the end result of Hezekiah's relationship with the king of Babylon. Isaiah showed that this relationship would prove to be fatal, not only for Hezekiah's descendants, but for the nation of Judah as well. His actions were the beginning of the undoing of his family's lives and of the nation of Judah. End quote. Isaiah was showing Hezekiah that you just can't cozy up to Babylon and at the same time be close to God. You have to trust one or the other. But not trusting in God always led to disaster. In another booklet, Gerald Fleury wrote about this event. And this is the booklet, Former Prophets, quote, Isaiah wanted to show Hezekiah that he was relying on his own treasure or strength instead of on God. Isaiah wanted the king to recognize that he was beginning to rely on Babylon. It was at that point that Isaiah prophesied Judah's fate. The nation was going to fall to the Babylonians. End quote. After this discussion with Isaiah, Hezekiah said, quote, Good is the word of the eternal which you have spoken. He said, moreover, For there shall be peace and truth in my days. End quote. In the end, Hezekiah humbly received the correction after a rocky start to the whole discussion. So there is peace in his time, but the prophecy was there. And in effect, God set a timer on the independent existence of Judah. 
Judah was going to fall. It was only a matter of when. And right at this peak comes the start of the decline, much like with the Assyrian Empire. At the same time God set a timer for Judah, he also set a timer on the Assyrian kingdom because it was the Babylonians that were prophesied to rise. Doesn't that mean then that the Assyrians were going to be diminished, if not defeated? How else could the Babylonians be in the position to do what was prophesied, to take down Judah? And so in one prophecy, the clock starts ticking down on two kingdoms. And since this necessitated the rise of Babylon, it also started a countdown for the rise of an independent Babylon. But it wasn't going to be in Merodach Baladan's time. His revolt was quickly crushed by Sennacherib in 702 BCE. Sennacherib made Babylon priority number one, so there's no time for Merodach Baladan to enjoy kingship or build up alliances for his rebellion. He only lasted nine months on the throne. And since this was the second time Merodach Baladan had seized the throne from Assyria, Sennacherib goes into full Assyrian terror mode in dealing with Babylon. Here's what is reported in the annals of Sennacherib in his first campaign as king of Assyria. And I'm going to replace the Assyrian version of Merodach Baladan's name with what we've been using already. Quote, On my first campaign, I brought about the defeat of Merodach Baladan, king of Kardunish together with the troops of Elam, his allies in the plain of Kish. In the midst of that battle, he abandoned his camp, fled alone, and saved his life. I seized the chariots, horses, wagons, and mules that he had abandoned in the thick of battle. I joyfully entered his palace, which is in Babylon. Then I opened his treasury and brought out gold, silver, gold and silver utensils, precious stones, all kinds of possessions and property, without number. A substantial tribute, together with his palace women, courtiers, attendants, male singers, female singers, all of the craftsmen, and as many as there were, and his palace attendants, and I counted them as booty. End quote. This time, Sennacherib installs a Babylonian puppet king on the throne, hoping that this would make the Babylonians more accepting of Assyrian rule, and therefore bring them the heel. The person he put in charge was a noble named Belabini, who had been educated at the Assyrian court and, according to Sennacherib, had been grown up like a puppy in my palace. But remember, Merodach Baladan had escaped once again. This guy was a wily Chaldean. And he was causing so much trouble that in three years, Sennacherib made his own son king of Babylon, either because Belabini was untrustworthy, maybe working with the Chaldeans, or maybe because Belabini was just incompetent and couldn't keep the Chaldeans from causing trouble. Either way, Sennacherib replaces the king. Merodach Baladan was unable to seize the Babylonian throne again, and even though he had waged guerrilla warfare, he died in exile, likely in Elam. But the Chaldeans continued to fight for Babylonia's independence. It goes back and forth between the Chaldeans and the Assyrians, even the Elamites get more involved, and we won't get into it, but notably Sennacherib's son that he installed on the Babylonian throne was captured and most likely killed. A usurper takes over who is then captured by the Assyrians and Sennacherib had him thrown in a neck stock and fetters brought him up to Nineveh where he faced his ultimate punishment, being bound with a bear in front of the city gate. That's Assyrian justice for you. 
What a chaotic time all over the West this would have been, by the way. The point is that whatever alliance Hezekiah and Merodach Baladin were trying to enter into never came to anything. And it was clear, though, that Hezekiah did repent of that, but there were still consequences. These consequences were prophesied by the prophet Isaiah to Hezekiah, and it was quite the pronouncement. Imagine if you were told how your nation's leaders would end. If some prophet, a prophet by the way that you absolutely knew was from God, with abundant proof, comes and tells your nation's leadership how they would be destroyed, would you believe it? As a citizen, you'd have to hope that your leadership was doing anything it could to change the outcome if possible. And at least Hezekiah did repent. Gerald Flurry writes this in his book, quote, Perhaps the best evidence indicating that Hezekiah repented is found in 2 Kings 18 verses 5 through 6, which provide an overall summation of Hezekiah's life. Quote, He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. For he clave to the eternal and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments, which the eternal commanded Moses. End quote. That's quite the summation for a king who is human and made mistakes, but ultimately followed God. And really because of that, we have two of the greatest miracles recorded in the Bible here. Hezekiah did die 15 years later as prophesied. His son Manasseh, who was born after the miracle healing and who would have been a child when Hezekiah tried to ally with Babylon, was only 12 when he took over the throne. And if you were a Jew living in Jerusalem or Judah at this time, and you knew about Isaiah's prophecies and you believed them, you'd have to hope that Manasseh would follow God's laws in hopes to delay the oncoming onslaught. After all, the kingdom of Judah, its prosperity and independence was at stake. Would the prophecy be fulfilled soon? that had to be on any believer's minds when Hezekiah died. A countdown had started for Judah. A countdown had started for Assyria. And there was also a timer set on Babylon's rise. You see, an empire would soon rise from Babylon, and the Babylonians would have a long memory. They would remember the cruelty of Assyria, and they would remember the wealth of Judah. The clock was ticking. The Babylonians were coming. And it was only a matter of time when the timer reached zero. Rewind Repeat, a history podcast, airs on kpcg.fm 101.3 as part of the Trumpet Radio. You can find this show and all the other shows on the Trumpet Radio on thetrumpet.com or on kpcg.fm. This podcast is called Rewind Repeat because the history that's covered on the show applies to us today. I quoted two books written by Gerald Flurry that shows this is the case. What happened anciently to Israel and Judah matters to us today. If you want to see that and prove it for yourself, I strongly recommend you order Isaiah's End Time Vision, and The Former Prophets, both by Gerald Flurry, and both can be acquired for free at thetrumpet.com.